0: Today on Ag News Daily.
1: That is not just the issue of a labor shortage, it's not just warm bodies and positions. it's people who are qualified, and part of qualification is motivation.
0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, it is August 9th, I am Mike Pearson, co-host of the Ag News Daily podcast, joined today by just Delaney Howell, and Delaney, how you doing?
2: Hey, just Delaney Howell, what am I, chopped liver? Well, I mean, it's,
0: it isn't Delaney and Hannah Pagel. It's
2: okay. only Delaney Howell. You get, you're lucky enough to get me today.
0: Yeah, I guess, because you've been very busy. You've been out yes. at the greatest state fair in the entire world.
2: <laughs> well, we have some Texas listeners, so I know that their fair is also very good, and so is the Minnesota State Fair. But yeah, Iowa's definitely up there with uh, the best state fairs. No, I think the Minnesota yeah. State Fair is actually ranked second for state fairs, and Iowa's ranked Third or fourth or fifth somewhere. It's no. still in the top five. Yeah, Texas no. State. first. who
0: does that ranking?
2: I don't know. I've never been to the Texas State Fair, so I can't say for sure.
0: Huh? Shenanigans. Well. Anyway, so tell us about the State Fair. You <laughs> were there. How'd it go?
2: It was good. We were at the FFA Sheep Show this morning. Got a lot of stuff we're covering next week. Of course, you and I are going to be showed throwing throwing the show ring. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Throwing the hat down to see who's the better showman on Saturday for the Governor's Charity Steer Show.
0: I'm not throwing my hat down. Those hats are collectibles, Blaney.
2: Well, it's just a figure of speech, Mike. What do you want to throw down instead? Let's throw down some money.
0: Um. Yeah, okay. Are
2: you going to do a wager with me?
0: Sure. Four Wait. grand for the winner.
2: Oh. Okay, well, I don't have four grand unless we get some people (laughs) to donate some money. We'll do a GoFundMe page.
0: I think we would probably run afoul of some anti-gambling laws here if we were uh, actually throwing down some money. So let's just, let's be cool. Um, But yeah, we'll be back at the State Fair. You were there today. It was hot. You had a chicken. Mm -hmm. I had uh, a
2: corn dog. dog? I had a corn dog. Yep, sure did.
0: Nothing else, huh?
2: No, just a corn dog. What else do I need?
0: What? Pork chop on a stick?
2: Well, I'm working the Iowa pork producer's tent next week, so I'll probably get a free pork chop on a stick then.
0: All right. Well, that'll be good. In the meantime, Delaney, what is happening in the world of agricultural news?
2: Well, we certainly have a lot going on in the world of agricultural news. We had uh, some crop progress reports come out, and I think you had that information, so I'm going to let you tackle that. But we do have the WASDE report coming out tomorrow, and I first wanted to start off here with some trade news. I know we keep talking about trade and tariffs and whatnot, but just hours after the Trump administration said on Tuesday it would impose another $16 billion of tariffs on Chinese goods, starting August 23rd, China responded and said that they're going to make necessary countermeasures and have decided to impose a 25% tariff on 16% billion dollars of goods imported from the U.S. and uh, said that they will implement it in parallel with the U.S. So it sounds like it is also going to go into effect August 23rd.
0: Yes, that's where we sit today. But we also had trade news that might be might be kind of positive. Uh, okay. Still getting reports out of the
2: Mexican-American
0: uh, mm-hmm. NAFTA discussion, yes. basically the uh Mexican Economy Minister Ildefonso Guajardo said it's possible that uh, Canada could join those talks next week, but he's really pushing to have a bilateral Mexican-U.S. agreement Mm. in place before Canada jumps back into the fray.
2: Well, I was reading something yesterday that said um, Undersecretary Greg Dowd was very discouraged because China just hasn't reciprocated or responded to any of the attempts that they've made to reach out to them and get them back to the negotiating table.
0: Oh, oh, back on China. Yes. No, 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 no.
2: with Canada. Oh. Like, they've been reaching out to Canada to come back to the table to sit down for negotiations for NAFTA, and Canada hasn't even responded, it sounds like. Weird. Yeah. So.
0: Well, all right, what else you got for us?
2: Okay, so we have covered the tax section 199A pretty in-depth on the podcast, and we've got some new news about that today. Did you see this, Mike? I don't think so. Okay. So the IRS has reissued, I guess, a long-awaited rule since we had that 20% pass-through deduction. The new, I guess, deduction that they're doing, um, they've they've again granted a pass-through business deduction, a 20% pass-through deduction. And this will allow farms that are filed as partnerships or LLCs. I believe S-corporations can also do this or sole proprietorships. You will be able to deduct 20% um, for those so-called pass-through entities. And it sounds like it's very similar to the Section 189A that they had in the first version. Okay. All right.
0: So 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 for... Folks who, when they sit down and meet with their accountants, shouldn't be any huge changes from last year. No, no, on this no. Issue. It is,
2: I'm saying it sounds like the same bill that they proposed earlier in the year with the with the tax pass-through deductions, like we were talking about with the cooperatives. Oh. Like, I don't – we need to have somebody on. Maybe we could get Glenn Birnbaum on or Paul Niefer on again, those two tax accountants that we've had on the podcast before. Yeah. But it sounds like they're – it sounds very similar to what they were doing before.
0: Okay, yeah. well, I it'll be interesting to see if that gets any kind of traction.
2: Right, yep, it will be.
0: Oh, speaking of things costing money, which of course is what taxes are, there are uh, reports out of Europe, you know, we've talked about the drought in the uh, northern countries of Europe affecting their grain crops, you know, wheat production's mm-hmm. down, corn production's down. Of course, this also means that straw production is down and prices have skyrocketed. Ordinarily in England, a a ton of straw typically costs about forty five dollars and it's up to a hundred bucks as of today. Um so that's excuse me, forty five it's up to a hundred pounds sterling, British currency. So that'd be like a 112 dollars ish. Probably a little
2: more than that, yeah.
0: Yeah, maybe one hundred twenty five in American money. So farmers over there in Europe are really going to be grappling with higher feed costs that, you know, farmers here in this country, cattle producers, saw back in 2012, 2013, when we were phenomenally short on uh, forage.
2: Hmm. Interesting.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Well, let's see. Moving on to some other international news. The USDA did just released some trade data for the month of June, And has shown a pretty large market share of U.S. soybeans are already sifting or shifting very sharply away from China to the European Union. More than 589,000 metric tons of soybeans were shipped to the EU in June compared to just over 184,000 for June of 2017. So we're already seeing a big transition there. Um, Yeah. And EU was the top destination for U.S. soybeans in June. And Mexico came in number two, but just was substantially lower than what they were for that time last year. Um, 322,000 bushels for this year compared to 400, I'm sorry, 322,000 bushels last year compared to 485,000 tons this year. So getting a little bit, getting a little bit more uh, market share there. And Pakistan is the other one that they really noted which imported nearly 396,000 tons of U.S. soybeans, making it the third destination. I thought that was very interesting. As we look at expanding markets, that's not one that I would usually think of.
0: Yeah. No, I think that that really is interesting. And I'm trying to do a little geography here in my head. Okay. Delaney, yes. do you know what country borders Pakistan?
2: Um, So we have India. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe India would be just south of Pakistan. Yep. And then is Iraq and Iran, I believe, also bordering one of the Iran. And
0: Afghanistan. Yep. And there's one other um, country. Is
2: Saudi Arabia?
0: No, it is China.
2: Oh, right, right, right. Duh. Yeah, because uh, the very northern part of, or the part that touches China, um, is actually more Chinese influenced than Pakistani influenced. We'd studied yes. that in one of my. Yep, it's classes. in the
0: in the Himalayas. Yep. But you know, it's interesting to think that, hmm Pakistan, a neighbor of China, has all of a sudden exploded on the scene as a soybean importer. Oh.
2: I wonder what they could be
0: doing with those beans.
2: Oh, I've never thought about that. Like maybe they're importing them there but then they're just selling them directly to China.
0: Mm-hmm. Trans shipping. That would huh. be my guess there with why why it exploded so much so quickly.
2: Well, I mean, we've talked about that before, and maybe we haven't talked about it on the podcast, but I've had discussions with folks who've said, you know, it's very possible that people could be sourcing beans through Canada pretty soon, or potentially if markets don't get better here, those people up in, like, very northern North Dakota could potentially ship their beans to Canada instead.
0: Sure. You go wherever the market is. Right. That's a yeah. fact. Yeah. Well, I've got some news out of California. California, their Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals today ruled that the use of chlorpyrifos is now banned in the state of California. Uh, the EPA under Obama had put a plan in place to eliminate chlorpyrifos. When uh, Scott Brewitt got on board, they changed that and they said, nope, we're going to keep using it. It's still a, a usable chemical. And now the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has said, nope, you've got to ban this chemical within 60 days. And this matters because the chemical is used on about 1.3 million acres of California farmland. And I thought this was interesting. Todd Neely from DTN has been covering this trial, in, or this case, and he's been tweeting out today that during this whole process, there were no appeals or no briefs filed by farm organizations on behalf of chlorpipharos.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So apparently, it's just going to go away and nobody stood up to defend it from the egg sector.
2: And what is chlorpipharos used in?
0: It is a pesticide.
2: Okay. Yep. Okay. So it's
0: used per- on a lot of tree crops, mm-hmm. cotton, and uh, uh, just a lot of crops in California. And they say okay. it, it causes neural damage
2: mm-hmm. in uh,
0: farm workers and was it other livestock? The big one was farm workers and perhaps their family and children.
2: Okay. Well, I've got some other pesticide-related news as we look at California's ag industry. A California jury heard today deliberations in that case about whether glyphosate and Roundup Ready causes cancer. Dwayne Johnson, who was a former groundskeeper, was diagnosed with a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma back in 2014 and claimed that Monsanto's weed killer was what gave it to him, Roundup. And so the judge heard the, I believe, that side of the case today. Okay. Um, so the verdict is still, I guess we're still waiting to see what the verdict is.
0: Right, so Monsanto's side is going to present next.
2: Yeah, the way I understand it, I believe so, yes.
0: Oh, no, right. actually, and, nope,
2: I'm sorry, both sides have presented. Um, and in the closing arguments, Johnson's attorneys and then the lawyers for Monsanto's apparently couldn't agree on basic facts, including when he was exposed, when his rashes began appearing, or even how much his body, of his body was covered during the accident.
0: Hmm. So interesting.
2: we're waiting now to hear the verdict.
0: Okay. All right. Well, we'll wait and see. We should clarify this. Dwayne Johnson is not Dwayne no, the, not Rock the Rock Johnson.
2: Right. Yeah. Good
0: right. All right. I've got just one other piece of news here, and this is coming out of South America. We talked earlier this year about the Brazilian truckers who went on strike. This seems to happen fairly frequently down there. They were on strike for 11 days, caused a lot of spoilage in their meat production, really slowed down their export regime. And now we have Michel Tamer has come out and he has signed an increase into law. He signed a bill that allows the government to set minimum truck freight prices and it's much higher than it was before the strike. Now, this has upset a lot of farm groups. In fact, one of the larger farm groups, CNA, said the study showed that this new policy will cause the price of basic foodstuffs like meat, rice, beans, and eggs to increase by 12%. Hmm. So if we think about uh, Brazilian soybeans now costing 12% more to get to their ports, all of a sudden... A 25% U.S. tariff is only a 12.5% U.S. tariff to the end well, user. Well,
2: the way I see it, Brazilian soybeans have already been trading at a premium, which was almost mm-hmm. equivalent to the 25% tariff. So this 12% cost or 12% higher cost makes me think that it's going to be more like you're paying a whatever, 37 percent premium to buy Brazilian soybeans.
0: Yep. Oh, and I've got just one other quick update. Delaney, do you have any other news for us? No, go ahead, Mike. Perfect. So we talked yesterday about the ship Peak Pegasus Mm -hmm. that is full of soybeans and floating around off the coast of China. I I got. We talked about what it costs for them to sit out there and do that. So if they were to deliver those beans at their contracted price, which was north of $10, the tariff cost would be an additional $6 million to unload those beans. Floating around in the ocean costs the owners of that ship about $12,500 per day. Mm. So they can afford, it actually makes sense for them to float around off the coast for, you know, really up to six months or six to nine months before it starts to really eat yeah. into their. Oh, into no, their more than that. Market. I just
2: did the math. So six million divided by 12,000 is 500. Uh, days. Yeah.
0: Oh, so that's a year and a half. Yeah. Oh, wow.
2: But that doesn't include, well, does the $12,000 include, like, what they're paying crew members and all of that stuff, or what?
0: Supposedly. Okay.
2: Yeah. Wouldn't include,
0: like, interest on the beans that they've purchased or anything like that additional cost. Yeah,
2: 500 days. That's crazy.
0: Yeah, so we could have that peak Pegasus just flopping around out there in the ocean for for quite a while, it sounds (laughs) like. Does that mean, like.
2: like, the people that are on the ship would just have to, like chill out there for the next i mean they wouldn't have enough supplies to last them that long but jeez
0: i'm sure they can go to shore
2: yeah that's crazy i wish we could find yeah. somebody that was like on the ship that would be really cool
0: it would be we'll have to put our
2: put our thinking caps on for that yeah one.
0: Well, let's see. We're going to have a good conversation. I had a call this morning with Diana Pritchard, who has written a lot about immigration and farm work in rural America. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Delaney, it's definitely worth sticking around and listening to. It was a really good conversation.
2: Yeah, I'm very excited to hear it, Mike. But before we do that, why don't we hop over into today's market so we can get to that great interview.
0: Absolutely. Let's do that, folks. And we're going to remind you that our markets are brought to us by our good friends at the Zaner Group. Volatility in prices can create some nervousness, but it can also create some opportunity. To put that black ink in your pocket, give our friends at Zaner a shout at 312-277-0050 or visit their website at zaner.com. We've got red ink on the screen today in the grain markets. In corn, the September contract was down two cents at 369 and a quarter. December was down two and a quarter to close at 382 and three quarters. In soybeans, the August contract six cents lower finished at 887 and three quarters. November new crop down six and a half to finish at 904 even. In Chicago wheat, the September contract dropped five and a half cents at 564 and a half. December down four and three quarters closed the day at 586 and a half. Looking over on the livestock side, it was not a pretty day for cattle producers in live cattle, the august contract was down a dollar fifty seven fifty at one oh eight twenty five october off at dollar ninety five on the day to close at one oh nine oh five and feeder cattle saw that trend continue the august contract down a dollar thirty at one forty nine thirty five september down seventy two and a half to finish at one forty nine oh two fifty did see some strength in lean hogs. The August contract was up seventeen and a half cents to finish at fifty four ninety seven fifty October limit up. Three dollars higher, fifty one forty was the close in that contract. Looking over at the dairy market for our friends producing class three milk, the August contract up eleven cents on the day at fourteen ninety seven, September twenty eight cents higher to close at fifteen ninety eight. Before we talk to Diana Pritchard, let's get a word from our friends at Latham High Tech Seeds.
2: Well, joining me now is agronomy specialist Phil Long from Latham High Tech Seeds. And Phil, thank goodness we have you because Mike and I are no agronomists, and we've heard from a lot of producers, and you've heard from a lot of producers about a problem going on right now called frog eye leaf spot disease. Fill us in, Phil. What is that disease, and what does it do to soybeans?
3: Sure. So it's a, it's a fungal disease. It's uh, something that we may not hear about quite as often, but you know, given the conditions we've had, these nice uh, humid rainy conditions we seem to keep getting uh, fortunately i should say but uh, tends to favor this kind of disease uh, showing up in the the soybean canopy and the problem with it is it shows up in the top part of the canopy or the upper canopy on the new leaves which is the ones you want to protect you know usually and uh, that's where it starts to show up as a circular lesion it's it's a round little circle and it has a really dark purple Uh, halo around the outside so pretty pretty characteristic of that particular disease but it it can affect the leaves stems and even spread into the seeds as well so it's something that you want to keep your eye on because it can cause a fair share of damage and only 30 percent infection on a leaf can can cause yield loss.
2: Phil I think you know what my next question is going to be is there anything you can do to prevent or treat frog eye when you get it in your field?
3: Yeah, so the best thing to do is number one, know what it is. You know, that's what I always try to try to encourage people know what you're diagnosing. But then, you know, it's it's one that's spread by residue, so you know, uh, no-till situations typically find it uh, worse. In those cases, or continuous soybean fields, if there are many of those out there, that's uh, something to maybe shy away from for a year or two. Not not trying that practice, um, but just uh, you know, protecting it all the way up to the really the green bean stage. So. R3 is a good time to treat if you're going to use a, a strobular inside fungicide on that disease, um, but just keeping it protected until those, those seeds are to that, that full seed stage.
2: All right, and any one of the agronomists there at Latham High Tech Seeds, I'm sure will be willing to help folks out if you have questions about your fields, and you can reach them at 1-800-GO-LATHAM.
0: Well, folks, joining us today on the Ag News Daily Podcast is Diana Pritchard. And Diana is a freelance journalist. She's based in Michigan. She's a farmer. She's a mom. Diana, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Hey,
1: thanks for having me on.
0: The reason I wanted to get in touch with you and and bring you on the podcast today is... Immigration is going to be a big topic. We've had H2C visas proposed, we've had concerns with the H2B, and I think for a lot of us in agriculture, particularly row crop production in the the key Corn Belt states, we don't think much about immigration. And you've done quite a bit of studying on this topic.
1: Yeah, I think it's hard in the Corn Belt because, you know, the ag industry likes to think of itself as a monolith. You know, we're all in this together. But when you get into the Midwest, if you're outside of dairy, there's not a lot of contact with immigrant labor, even though um, there are definitely sectors of ag that depend on it uh, very heavily
0: and so in your in your studies and your reporting, what has jumped out at you about the state of farm workers in the u s today? What are we not seeing here in the Midwest?
1: Well, I think that you know, of course, is a question that has some layers to it. Um, one of the things that always jumps out at me, and I always like to go for the the narrative that's not being told the the thing that we're not looking at. And I think right now, uh, a lot of the conversation around immigration, especially in the Midwest, um, is coming from outside. So it's being dictated to us, which is so much like uh, every other topic, right? Mm-hmm. That's the issue that we keep having. That's what's driving people in politics these days, things that are dictated from outside. And I think there's a lot of miscommunication, misunderstanding on both sides. One side um is is of course the side that says immigration has nothing to do with the midwest because like i said if you're outside of dairy then then you're probably not using immigrant labor and you're not going to because we're only getting more fish, efficient with the way we harvest row crops and handle them um, the other side of course is that, you know, that narrative of the big blue wave that's coming and, and so many people outside of the Midwest thinking that, uh, immigration in this topic is going to flip votes in and of itself, that the trade war is going to do it, uh, the labor shortage is going to do it. And, and that's not true either because what people often don't understand about rural economies, um, is That a very small portion of us, right, actually care and know anything about this topic, no matter where you're at in the country. So whether you're at a small town in California or a small town in Iowa, um, it's only, you know, two out of the hundred people in the town who actually have a a connection to any sort of immigration um, in their, their ongoing business.
0: Yeah, that's a key point. I think a lot of us in production agriculture, when we think of rural America, we tend to think, well, of course, they understand what we're doing and they've got our backs. And the reality is most folks, rural or urban, are completely disconnected from the process of food production.
1: Absolutely. And even those people that work in agriculture, I would say probably 90% of the people that I have some sort of interaction with on a daily basis, work in agriculture or very closely um, related to agriculture. They might not be farmers, uh, but they're truckers. They are farm hands. They're custom uh, harvesters. They're these kind of people who have a connection, and you would think of them as agriculturalists. Um, and and I think outside of our circles, outside of the people who really understand what's going on, everyone assumes that those people then are going to find the immigration rhetoric that we're hearing really a, an affront to their their ability to make a living. But that's not true because unless you're really one of the farmers running a specific farm that relies on immigrant labor. Um, most of these people have no idea what's going on and, furthermore, don't necessarily really care that much either.
0: Yeah, that's, I think, a key component. And for those of us in ag who, uh, to this point, and I'm speaking from experience here, haven't had to care much about immigrant labor or uh, labor shortages, what do we need to be thinking about? How big of an impact do does immigrant labor have on ag production, food production in this country?
1: So I think what we need to really be driving home is probably to communicate with our friends who don't necessarily use immigrant labor themselves how important it is to the entire chain. Because, you know, without the dairy farms, then, then there's lower feed demand. Without the dairy farms, there's lower trucking demand. It all really is connected. We just need to illuminate the ways that that is connected. Um, for people. I think also the the other issue that we're going to be looking at more and more is that it's not just an issue of a labor shortage. It's not just warm bodies and positions. It's people who are qualified, and part of qualification is motivation. Um, farms that have a certain amount they can pay, and I think this gets lost in the discussion, too. It's not that it's a low wage. It's just a low wage for people who are who are used to a certain standard of living, and so you know, motivating certain people to do jobs that we need done at a certain wage isn't always ca- possible for us. We're not always capable of doing that. And so immigrants really serve um, to to fill in those gaps where maybe motivation wouldn't happen for an American um, who was born here, who was raised here, who has a certain standard of living that they're trying to meet, um, but we're an immigrant coming from a country that maybe is a little poorer. poorer um, knows how to stretch a buck a little further, those people can be motivated. And having employees who are really motivated does keep the supply chain moving a lot better.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, there's the argument to be made that immigrants are self-selecting for motivation. They wouldn't be here if they didn't want to work. They wouldn't make that arduous
1: journey. Absolutely. It's not an easy one. I have talked to a lot of immigrants, um, documented, undocumented, and the undocumented task here specifically is one that's very traumatic for a lot of them and, and very hard to accomplish.
0: Now, you talked about communicating how important immigrant labor is to the entire food chain and the entire chain of agriculture, and that's where I first really started interacting with you was a discussion on Twitter about how to have that conversation. What should this communication look like and from your perspective diana what should it look like how do we communicate this thing in a way that makes people care
1: you know i go back i think on every topic to a solution's lens to things. And, and what that means is that we're looking at not just the problem, because that gets reported nonstop. We're constantly hearing about what is the problem, um, you know, things that are going wrong. You know, the old saying, if it bleeds, it leads in journalism. And we really need to get back to where we're looking at the solutions. We're looking at what people are trying that are that's working, um, what some of our experts who are who are really deep diving on the research, things that they think might work, um, I think just as a nation in general, but especially on this topic, we have to get back there and look at solutions. How can we make this work? How can, how can we make sure that um, immigrants have a path to get here and work um, for us? We need them. And, and then also, how can we make sure the system is working for the farmers who need to hire them as well? That's a
0: key component. And since you've talked to a lot of immigrants, both documented and undocumented, when you hear about th- their story – what are they looking for? Are they looking for a path to citizenship? Are they looking to make some money and, and go back home to incur, enhance their families' lives back wherever they came from? What's the story that we're not being told from the immigrant's perspective?
1: Absolutely. I think most of them are looking to stay here. They're looking to make a life. Um, all of them that I've talked to love it here in the United States. They want to continue to work. Many of them would like a path. To be able to be bigger stakeholders in the farms that they're working on. They, they want to see the farm succeed. Um, is every single one capable of becoming, you know, that herdsman or that manager? No. But there are, you know, they're there and they would like a path that allows them to become citizens, that allows them to become more of a partner. And, and that's only good for those farms. That, that means they're taking an interest. Uh, that means, you know, they're really invested in the success. And as I think every farmer in the, the world knows if you don't have a passion, if you're, if you're not invested, there's not going to be success on your operation. So having those employees is a good thing. Um, the other thing I hear from them a lot is that they, they really want the path to citizenship or at least, uh, documentation so that they can visit their families back home. Many of them miss their families. They don't necessarily, uh, miss living there they don't necessarily want to you know take the money and run kind of a thing that's not a concern but they would like to be able to go back and forth visit their grandma um have have some sort of um contact with nieces and nephews on birthdays and christmas and that sort of thing and so they're really just looking for some legitimacy and to be recognized for for the work and the contributions that they're making
0: Absolutely. And Diana, because your work straddles or or portions of your work have straddled that immigrant rural America divide, one of the concerns I hear quite a bit from rural Iowa and rural anywhere is that new people bring change. And sometimes for a lot of rural communities, change is kind of hard to adapt to. We like things the way they are. And, you know, all of a sudden we're seeing new faces, perhaps hearing some new languages. What's a way to... I guess how can we talk to people in communities that could see change and explain some of the benefits? Does that help, or how do we get around that aspect
1: i think I think you know having them see how change has happened in communities where it's already taking place. I know where I live in rural Michigan, we have had a farm uh, um, a Hispanic farm worker population uh, an entire community here for several decades they're very well entrenched in our local community and yeah there is some change but what that change looks like is economic opportunities they've opened businesses that appeal to one another and then we're also able to frequent those businesses if we'd like but of course you can walk by too you know if if a taqueria doesn't doesn't uh, appeal to you, you don't have to go in. Um, but, but it has also presented economic opportunities for local business owners. We have one uh, small party store owner specifically who um, imports uh, snacks and drinks and, and um, that kind of thing that appeal to the farm workers. And so it has, has presented an economic opportunity there, too. The other thing, I think, is that sometimes we do emphasize the change too much the change is very subtle. It it doesn't seem to, you know, it's not revolutionizing the way the town does anything. It's just more people coming in who have a little bit of a different preference. And what I find in talking to them is that they want to embrace what small town America has for them as well. Many of them come from small towns in, in Mexico or Central America. Um, and they like what we have to offer as well. They're not coming in and and expecting to change it to their hometown. They're coming in and saying, how can I make a life here with what's available um, and, and know my neighbors, know my, you know, make new friends and settle down where I'm at.
0: Diana, we could talk all day about immigration and farm work, but I want to get your thoughts. I know you've got a lot to do. As you look out into the future over the next five, 10, 15 years, Are we going to have a solution, do you think, or at least a compromise on immigration that can keep 51% of the country happy?
1: I'm pretty sure no matter what I say to this one, I'm going to be wrong. (laughs) So, uh, you know, if if I go with the optimistic route and say, sure, yeah, we'll figure it out sooner or later, um, we probably won't. And if I say, you know, the, the pessimist in me says, no way, it's not going to happen, we haven't had meaningful um, change in the immigration system since the, the eighties, um, you know, I was in diapers, I think last time we had that, um, then, then maybe we will, we'll come together. I'm hopeful. Um, there are a lot of people who are interested, who are engaged, who are working and doing good work on this. Um, but I, I would also say that I'm very, uh, I try to keep my optimism under control. So we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we'll see.
0: We'll see, Diana. If listeners want to do uh, any additional reading, read some of the articles you've uh, you've written and reported on, where should they go to get that
1: information? I think probably following me on Twitter is the best choice. I'm Diana underscore Pritchard. Um, and since I'm freelance, I kind of get around to different outlets all the time, but I do try to promote those on Twitter. So it's a good, good resource.
0: Perfect. Diana Pritchard, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today.
1: Thanks for having me on, Mike.
0: Well, lots of different ways to look at immigration and, and what labor impacts are on the farm. Delaney, it's interesting.
2: It really is, Mike. I agree.
0: You know, we will be back tomorrow and we're going to be talking about milk labeling regulations. So that should be a pretty interesting conversation. What does all of it mean calling uh calling milk milk and soy milk soy beverage? So folks stick around and, and nut say juice. juice. Yeah, okay, nut juice, your various uh other beverages. Yeah. Uh, Delaney, where should <laughs> folks go to learn more?
2: Absolutely, Mike. People can head to at Ag News Daily on Twitter and Facebook to find us there. They can also start following us on our new Global Ag Network. We have got a Facebook page and a Twitter page set up if you just search for Global Ag Network. You can always find us online as well if you head to agnewsdaily.com to listen to past episodes of the podcast With that, Mike, should we let the people go?
0: Let's let them go.